Let us begin our sermon with prayer. God, our Father, you made us and we belong to you. Keep us mindful of your goodness that with thankful hearts we may proclaim your praise, who alone is worthy of honor and glory together with your Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our text for our sermon is Psalm 24, verses 1 through 4. The earth is the Lord's and everything that fills it, the world and all who live in it, because he founded it on the seas and he established it on the rivers. Who may go up to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, whose soul is not set on what is false, who does not swear deceitfully. This is the word of our Lord. The other day I was watching a YouTube video of somebody going on a rant about Thanksgiving in which they didn't seem to know when Thanksgiving actually was instituted. So it became an official holiday on October 3rd, 1863, when our president, then Abraham Lincoln, it was after the, Gettysburg, the Battle of Gettysburg, which had happened in July, thought it would be good to set aside a day in which the nation would focus on the losses and the gains and bring those to, quote, the Almighty Father, end quote. And what a neat idea. How wonderfully thankful I should be to live even in a country where they didn't say, but you'd better do this. And how wonderfully thankful I should be to live in a country where I can even criticize my government. And in general, sometimes you hear stories of IRS or FBI maybe being used to put you through process. But as a whole, I can even criticize my government and not fear retribution, freedom of speech, right? But I have to admit to you, every year when I celebrate Thanksgiving, if it were not for that service in every church I've ever served the night before on Thanksgiving Eve, I would forget to think about God at all. Because on Thanksgiving, what I think about? Turkey, mashed potatoes, pumpkin pie or pecan pie. And so today our sermon theme is a reminder to us. Give thanks to the Lord of all creation. I will preach on my translation and, uh, because it brings out some of the parallelism in Hebrew poetry. It says, the earth belongs to the Lord and all that fills it. The world belongs to the Lord and all those who live in it. What? All those who live in it? Doesn't that smack against your ears? I mean, again, Abraham Lincoln after a, a, a turning point victory, although an expensive victory in Gettysburg, a victory in a war that would free the slaves. And it would be sometime later, but women would be given rights. In America, we truly have a freedom that no one else has. So we don't like being told, what, somebody owns me? Yes, you are God's property. And what is more, people say, but I, I went to work. It's, it's the sweat of my brow. It's my blood and it's my breaking my back that'll pay for that turkey that'll be on the table on Thanksgiving. How dare you? How dare you claim that God owns me and that God owns my stuff? But we're told exactly why God can make that claim. Verse 2. For the Lord himself laid a foundation for it upon the waters, and he's established it beside the rivers. God is the one who separated the land and the water after making them. And then he determined the, the sea ends here. Now, 
It doesn't translate into English, but it's actually very interesting. In the first part, it says he himself laid a foundation. That's the perfect tense, which means he did it. It's done. It's an accomplished fact. It's effective for grammarians. But he uses the imperfect tense, which is kind of weird because Hebrew poetry is parallelism. It would actually be he keeps on establishing it upon the, the rivers. What? But see, the thing is, is like here in Casper, Wyoming, the North Platte River that Casper really came to be because here was the bridge in which people on the Oregon Trail would cross the North Platte. Yet if you were to walk along the North Platte today, you will find that in a little over 100 years, there are places where it has changed. Its banks are no longer the same place. Yet God has known from eternity this is where it'll change. This is where it won't. This is when I will stop it from sweeping through that village and I have a plan where I can use this for good. The point here is God made it. God is in control of the universe. God even made the atoms in his body. We forget that God is in control. We want to tell God how we want him who knows all things and we don't how to rule over things for us. We forget that our possessions are his and we get greedy like little children. Mines, mines, mines. Give me what's mine. And sadly, when we do realize it, we can become very strange as if we use the right psychological trick on God. Then we can get him to open up like a cash box and dump upon us. Or sometimes we think we can earn God's favor. God's got to like me if I do this. There are many ways we can turn around. People used to create false gods and they created the false gods to provide not for their heavenly things, for the afterlife, nearly as much as, as many uh, atheistic uh, professors would like you to think. It, it's actually people invented false gods most of the time to provide for their daily things like household protection and bread and stuff. And whether we're doing that or with a false god or whether we're treating God that way, we tend to think of him like throwing a coin into a slot machine. You pull the handle and you're waiting to get the double, the triple matches so that you hit the jackpot, right? I just got to get the right combination and the right pull in with God. That's not how it works. God's in control. God has a plan. And so it's wonderful comfort for us. And it gives us the reason to give thanks for God when we step back and even take a quick parousal through Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Let me give you a reminder. Let's go to the last day of creation. What was the last thing he created? He created the woman. Now, he created the man second to last, but he, he wanted the man even to appreciate the wonderful gift. People think the Bible doesn't think highly of women and Boy, do they get it wrong. They don't, they don't even read the first two pages. The Bible thinks very highly of women. They're the last thing God created before he took the seventh day of rest. But see, God made man the crown of creation, mankind. The Garden of Eden was meant to be an abode for Adam and Eve where they would happily live and it wasn't cursed against them until they fell into sin. And so it's amazing that we give thanks to the Lord of all creation. He made it. He made all of creation. He made you. But he made creation to bless you. And so we see we give thanks to the Lord of all creation. He made creation and he made you in order to bless you. Our text continues, though, with a very sombering question. Who may go upon the Lord's mountain and who may stand on his holy place? 
This is Hebrew poetry. And if you were a Jewish person hearing this in the time Psalm 24 was written, you would immediately think of Mount Zion and the holy place. You would immediately think of the holiest of holies. Now, recall only one person once a year got to enter into the holiest of holies. The Ark of the Covenant was there. The Ten Commandments were stored inside. And the high priest, he had to be born there. This was a privilege that was out of his control. He is by birth. Somebody, and the guy before him had to pass away. That's it. But he had to, he couldn't just go storming in there. God had said, I will strike you dead if you do that. In fact, we see well-meaning believers when the ark went into the promised land, when they crossed the Jordan River, uh, the, the men carrying it tripped and it began to fall. It almost fell and hit the ground. And some well-meaning believers reached out and touched it. But they weren't consecrated. God struck them dead. Now, they went to heaven. But that high priest, if he was not first cleansed by the blood of an innocent animal, pointing to the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world, hint, hint. If he wasn't cleansed, he, he could not enter into the Holy of Holies. He would be struck dead. He couldn't storm his way into there. But with all that consecration then, he would go in and he would take the blood of an animal and he would sprinkle it across the top of those Ten Commandments on what was called the mercy seat, the throne of God, to atone for the sins of Israel. The truth of the matter is, this is that the temple and the mountain it was built on were meant to be an image of the throne of God ruling in his temple in heaven. And we can't storm the gates of heaven. We can't even stand before God and tell him that he that that that, that he needs to take us and that he what he needs to do for us because we're unholy. And God's holiness will instantly destroy us. So that question, who may go upon the Lord's mountain and who may stand on his holy place? That question destroys all ideas of entitlement. Oh, but God, you owe this to me. Or how dare you? How dare you not let me approach you since, I, since I'm your creation who has become unholy? That's not fair of you. It destroys all self-righteousness. But Lord, look at how I threw extra money in the offering plate. Lord, look at how much time I give you. Lord, look at how holy I act. It destroys that because it points out to us you're unholy. And if you're going to stand before God, his holiness will destroy you. And it's important for us to understand that because I tell you anymore, you turn on television, you see Hollywood, you see political pundits, you see uh, news anchors. It's really the sign of our times. Sanctimonious people who will stand back and say, well, if God calls my pet sin a sin, then he's a bigot or a racist, because that's what our generation, our times do now. If they don't understand it, they call you racist, bigot, or throw out other sanctimonious, politically correct sins. But you know, the people who do that, if they're going to stand before God and say, how dare you demand I'm holy, they get destroyed. That's it. No one can stand before God. When we understand what holiness is, when we take a deep look into his law, which shows us there is holiness, it rips everything off us. And all we can do is fear God. Oh, Lord, don't destroy me. But then verse four answers the question. The one who is clean regarding his hands and the one who is pure regarding his heart. We begin like zombies with a cold, dead heart. And God sends somebody to us with his word to tell us, 
My son knew you could not even earn your salvation. You couldn't even contribute to it. So we planned it out before all eternity. He took on human flesh. He did all the good works. He stayed holy. He never once sinned, but he had to remove your sin. So he, as true God and true man, went to the cross. Only as man could he be your substitute. Only as man could he die. Only as God would his death atone for all your sins. And then he sent the Holy Spirit working through the words of somebody who came to you with that message. And the Holy Spirit entered your heart that was dead, that was unholy. And he created a new man. And the spiritual heart began to beat in love for me. And so our heart has been made clean because those who believe in God, it's, it's actually that the Holy Spirit created a new person in them. And so they have a holy heart. Yes, in this life we have a sinful nature. But with that new man that's connected to Christ, one of the great works that we do is we struggle against it. And when it says, the one who is clean regarding his hands... In the Bible, when it talks about hands, when it talks about images on the hands, it's talking about the work that you do. We, want, we do works to glorify God, not in order to be saved. You cannot do a good work unless you're already saved because the blood of Christ has to wash the sin free from that. And that's important. So how is the work of our hands cleansed? We bring our offering before the Lord, for example, on, on a Thanksgiving worship service, and, and we, we, we want to give that to him, but the sinful nature says, I could have bought a bigger turkey with this. I could buy some candy yams. New man struggles with that sinful nature. says, no, I will return thanks to the Lord. There was still the sin attached, though, and so the blood of Christ washes that clean. It takes the faith, the new man that the Holy Spirit has given us, where we receive the blood of Christ, and so we give thanks to the Lord of all creation. He made creation and you, but he made that creation to bless you. And then he cleansed you from sin by the blood of Christ. So let's get into some application there. Uh, verse four says, who does not lift up his soul or my soul to falsehood and who does not take an oath deceitfully. Now, in Hebrew poetry, it's usually parallelism, so it, it probably means he's not making a false oath. And we're going to get into that in a minute, swearing falsely, lying. But lots of times, this is how the Old Testament talked about idols, lifting up vanity, emptiness. On Thanksgiving, we want to thank the Lord for the things he's given to us. And it's easy to forget that life is not about having the biggest car in the driveway and, and the most comfortable air conditioning and heating system and the best clothes on our back. In fact, those are gifts from God as well. If we're living for those, we've made those our idol. And we're lifting up our lives, our soul to nothingness. That's going to send us to hell. When we have been purchased in one, one of the great commentaries, as we began earlier on talking about that, when we said the earth belongs to the Lord and all that fills it. What? How dare you? How dare you say uh, God owns me and my possessions? But I, I like the way Luther explains this in his commentary on the epistles of, of the apostle Peter. when he says, when you rent a room, you say my bed, my room, my table. But you know, those are on loan. God gives us these things so that we can glorify him. Now, when God is glorified, it's because others are brought in the faith and we're kept in the faith. So glorifying God, we receive the benefits. It's not an ego trip for him. And as I've said in other sermons, I, I always remember when I was a child, uh, my sister, who's 18 months older than me and myself, went with my father to a department store to get my mom a gift. And 
Amazingly, we didn't really even pick it out. My father really helped us in the first place because we were kids. And at the time, it was cutting-edge technology. It was the 80s, and it was this calculator that was the dimensions of a credit card, although it was probably as thick as four of them. And many times, my mom, I saw my mom use that afterwards. But then my dad paid for it. It wasn't, I'm taking this out of you kids' allowance money. It's... You often hear the stories of a child who, you know, dad isn't a believer, mom is, and the mom, against dad's wishes, brings the kids to Sunday school, and then little three- or four-year-old Billy or, or Janie uh, wants to say the table prayers that they learn in Sunday school. Uh, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he's good. And, and dad gets mad. It's the blood and sweat of, of, uh, and the pain of my back that provided this meal. Yeah, but daddy, um, God gave you the health to work it. Imagine if you got sick. We wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to provide for us. See, God gives to us, and he gives to us in abundance. And we wonder why he doesn't make us rich. Well, most of the time, because if he made us rich, that would become our God, and we would lose faith. But he gives us extra so that we can return thanks to him. And one of the ways we do that, when we give an offering, for example, a financial offering, it's actually we who benefit because then it's used to pay the heating bill and put the roof over our head to give us a place to worship. But we also have the privilege. God gives us extra. So we say, God, you're so wonderful. How can I give thanks? And he gives us natural talents that we use. He gives us spiritual talents and he gives us an abundance of possessions that we can give according to what we decide. In the Old Testament, you had to give the first fruits. You had to give 10%. In the New Testament, God says, that's up to you. And I've had the privilege of a pastor to go up to people and say, you know, in this church project, please don't be the one who donates all the money. Let other people have that opportunity because they also want to thank the Lord. What a wonderful problem to have when many Christians want to give thanks so that there's an abundance. So we're privileged to exercise stewardship over creation to glorify him. Yes, at Thanksgiving, we'll recognize, wow, God has provided all this and we'll be thankful to, to be able to provide, to thank, to, we'll be thankful for what God has provided and that he's given us the ability to provide for our families. But he privileges us also then to use those things to glorify him. The way we use our earthly possessions becomes a sermon to our unbelieving neighbor and a lesson for our children on how to glorify God. We use them to thank God. He doesn't expect us to give 100% of everything. No, God says you give out of love. I'll give you enough that you can do this. So we even thank him for giving us the extra that we're privileged then to get to use it to God's glory in which he turns around and showers us with the benefits. Yes, President Lincoln on October 3rd, 1863 established this holiday that the last Thursday of the month of November should be a time to contemplate the losses and gains and bring them to the Almighty Father. And through this psalm today, we see we give thanks to the Lord of all creation. He made creation and you, but he made creation to bless you, to be your home. And he cleansed you from the sin, from sin, and including the sins of misusing his creation. He cleanses us from sin by the blood of Christ. And then we're privileged to exercise stewardship over creation to glorify him. It's how we give thanks to him for the grace and the many privileges that he showers upon us. Amen. Now God will fully supply your every need according to the glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And happy Thanksgiving.